This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. I grew up in a home where my parents made pretty clear since for as far back as I can remember that I was black. This is writer Clint Smith. I can't remember a moment where I didn't realize that or where I wasn't cognizant of that. I do remember what it meant to begin to understand that blackness had a different set of social implications. So, for example, I played uh, soccer. And so, you know, I remember being 12 years old and there were certain things that my white soccer teammates would do. You know, we people would go and we'd leave Waffle House after playing two games and then people would be at the hotel and, you know, you'd run around the pool or you'd run around the parking lot and you played tag, you'd play it, or you'd, like, run around the hotel playing video games in, like, one room and then another. And I remember very distinctly my dad coming out grabbing me in the middle of this game, pulling me back to our room, and, and sitting me down in a way that I, I wasn't prepared for, I think, at that moment as a 12-year-old boy, to say, you are not like the rest of your friends. You are a black boy in a racist country, and the things that your friends can get away with, whether it be running around, shooting water guns, or throwing things at one another in the dark, hiding behind or climbing atop people's cars, running through hotel rooms or or hotel hallways, screaming and yelling, the sort of thing that, again, many 12-year-old boys do. He said the implications for the decisions that you make might be very different for you than they are for your other friends. He was saying to you, you can't do those things that when people say, oh, boys will be boys, it doesn't apply to you because you are going to be judged differently and you're going to be treated differently. Right. And I think that he tried to convey that without sort of overwhelming me, right? He also didn't want to scare me. And I think that that's that's part of the difficult balancing act of black parenthood is you really want to convey to your child. And and my dad wanted to convey to me that, like, I needed to take this seriously. I could tell that this was different, right? I could tell that there was something different in his tone, that there was something different in the way that he looked at me. That There was almost a, a begging, like a yearning for me to understand how serious this moment was. And, you know, I think that my dad, you know, was born in 1959 and so was obviously growing up. And he was coming of age as, as a black child in a moment throughout the 60s, which was sort of wrought with a very sort of explicit racial tension. And that that he wanted me to understand that although this was not the 60s, although this was not the era that we often see on television of uh, the black and white images of people being beaten by police or being hung from trees or being spit on when they attempt to go to school, this was not that, but this did not mean that different types of manifestations of racism did not exist. Racism is a word that triggers a lot of strong feelings and reactions. And just hearing me say it might trigger something in you. And most of us, at least implicitly, understand that racism and bias exist. But not everyone agrees on how damaging they can be. So on the show today, we're going to talk about consequences. About the consequences of racism about being judged even before you walk through the door. And a growing body of research and data is showing how those consequences can affect everything in your life, 
from where you live to the opportunities you'll have, your health and safety, your education, and even how you raise a son. How do you convey to a young person the very real material urgency of what you're trying to explain to them in terms of like how you doing some things literally represents an existential threat to your safety while also trying to convey to that young person that it is not their fault. Clint Smith spoke about this based on a poem he wrote. It was about the conversation many black parents have to have with their sons who live in a world that's been taught to fear them. Here's Clint Smith on the TED stage. These are the sorts of messages I've been inundated with my entire life. Always keep your hands where they can see them. Don't move too quickly. Take off your hood when the sun goes down. My parents raised me and my siblings in an armor of advice, an ocean of alarm bells so someone wouldn't steal the breath from our lungs so that they wouldn't make a memory of this skin so that we could be kids, not casket or concrete. And it's not because they thought it would make us better than anyone else. It's simply because they wanted to keep us alive. All of my black friends were raised with the same message, the talk, given to us when we became old enough to be mistaken for a nail ready to be hammered to the ground, when people made our melanin synonymous with something to be feared. But what does it do to a child to grow up knowing that you cannot simply be a child, that the whims of adolescence are too dangerous for your breath, that you cannot simply be curious, that you are not afforded the luxury of making a mistake, that someone's implicit bias might be the reason you don't wake up in the morning? I mean, in some ways, what you're describing, I mean, in some ways, this like nuanced racism, it's more complicated because it's not a black and white image of dogs and police and fire hoses. It's something that is much more subtle, but is just as present. Yeah. And I think that, you know, also as a 12 year old boy, I didn't really understand the nature of of structural racism. I, I think as many not even just young people, but many people, I thought of racism as somebody calling you the N-word, somebody being like very interpersonally unkind, using, you know, racial slurs. But I remember there was another time, and I think my childhood is full of these moments where my dad was trying to convey to me the different types of institutional racism that exists, right? So I, I grew up in New Orleans. Um, there were a lot of housing projects, right? And I remember I didn't understand why people were living in a place that like every day on the news I saw images of body bags coming out of these places I saw people who were not defined by at all but who were certainly living in conditions of like egregious poverty and that they were all black and I remember my dad we were passing um, I think the Magnolia Projects one day and we he sort of pulled the car over and he was like you have to understand that the people who live in these projects do not live here because that they have done something to deserve it. You're going to hear a lot of people throughout your life say that these folks are lazy, that these folks have a predisposition to violence, who are going to look at you and say that you are an exception to a rule. There is this sort of rhetoric of, oh, but you're different. Oh, but you're... Like when people will talk about the black community and say, oh, well, but I don't mean you, Clint. You're something else. And I think my dad wanted to be clear. He was like, just because you're in certain classes, just because you are often seemingly put in positions to represent this community, you should not fall into the trap that people will tell you, mostly white people will tell you, about any sort of idea of exceptionalism, because you're not, right? But for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, we would be in these projects instead of living in a different neighborhood. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, this idea of humanity, and specifically who in this world is afforded the privilege of being perceived as fully human. Over the course of the past several months, the world has watched as unarmed black men and women have had their lives taken at the hands of police and vigilante. These events and all that has transpired after them have brought me back to my own childhood, and the decisions that my parents made about raising a black boy in America that growing up I didn't always understand in the way that I do now. I think of how hard it must have been, how profoundly unfair it must have felt for them to feel like they had to strip away parts of my childhood just so that I could come home at night. You 
you have a, a child. You're a dad. I am. Son? Son. Little boy. So you are uh, you're a new dad. I am. He's eight months old. Eight months old. Um, are you going to have the same conversations with him that your dad had with you? Yeah. I've, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, I've been thinking about the sort of intergenerational nature of this conversation, right? That I'm going to have a talk that is at once different and not so different at all from the conversation that my grandfather had with my father, that my father had with me, and that I'm going to have with my son. And, you know, I think about the same things that I imagine my dad was thinking about. How does, what does it mean to have the conversation to tell my son that this is what many people in the world will think of you, but it is not your fault. But you also have to understand that, that it is real. But because it is real in the eyes of others doesn't mean it has to be real in your conception of yourself. Do you think, Clint, as we become a browner country, because your son, he's born in a country where when he's your age, Mm -hmm. most of America's, more than half America is going to be brown, Mm. right? Do you think that as the United States becomes a browner country, there's a possibility that black fathers one day may not have to have that conversation with their sons? Uh, so yes and no. I think um, part of what I see myself doing every day I wake up is to work to build the sort of world in which I, I don't have to have that sort of conversation with my son. And I operate under no pretense that that, that that will happen in my lifetime or that my son, if he has a, a son, will have that conversation with it. You know, I, I don't know when or how it will happen, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't continue to work toward that, right? Because part of it is that you do this work not necessarily so that you can see the fruits of its labor, but because somebody at some point will. And that's something that, you know, I think that my father conveyed to me in a way that helped to rid me of the a lot of frustration and disillusionment that I that I carry. That like I am a part of a a tradition of people who who have fought back against a racist anti-black country, even when it meant that they were never going to see the benefits of the things they were fighting against. Clint Smith. He's a Ph.D. student at Harvard studying incarceration, education, and inequality. He's also the author of the poetry book, Counting Dissent. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. On the show today, the consequences of bias and racism. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Stonyfield Organic Kids. If you like organic stuff and your kids like yummy stuff, Stonyfield makes it easy. With a whole bunch of organic yogurt treats like convenient cups, pouches, smoothies, and tubes, they're always ready to go. And best of all, Stonyfield is made without the use of toxic persistent pesticides, artificial hormones, antibiotics, or GMOs. If you're ready for yum, visit stonyfield.com NPR. Thanks also to Zoom Video Communications. Video conferencing has changed the way we do business. Meet happy anytime, anywhere with Zoom, connecting team members across the globe. Imagine seeing 25 people on the screen at once in digital video. Share anything, a file, a video, a photo, via desktop, laptop, tablet, or mobile. Visit zoom.us to set up your free account today. And meet happy with Zoom Video Communications, zoom.us. And one more quick thing. If you like the TED Radio Hour, you should check out a new podcast from TED called Work Life with Adam Grant. Adam's an organizational psychologist and TED speaker who we've had on the show before. And in Work Life, he goes inside some of the most unconventional workplaces to explore the ideas that we can all use to make work more meaningful and creative. It's available now, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts.
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the consequences of bias and racism. And those consequences can affect everything from the opportunities you have to where and how you get educated, and even your health. Black women in the United States are four times more likely to die during pregnancy and childbirth than white women. This is writer Miriam Zoila Perez. In certain places, that gap is even higher. So in New York City, for example, that rate is 12 times. Black women in New York City are 12 times more likely to die than white women in New York City during pregnancy and childbirth. Why? I mean, my, the answer that I've come to and a lot of people come to is racism, is literally the, the, the way racism impacts people's bodies and their health and their well-being. About 10 years ago, Miriam started working as a volunteer with pregnant women from a wide range of backgrounds. And I was really interested in the anthropology of reproduction and read a lot about that. But then the reality of what women are experiencing in that I saw in, in the hospital context um, was so racialized in a way that that academic study did not uncover. Here's more from Miriam Zoila Perez on the TED stage. African-American women in particular have an entirely different experience than white women when it comes to whether their babies are born healthy. In certain parts of the country, particularly the Deep South, the rates of mother and infant death for black women actually approximate those rates in sub-Saharan Africa. In those same communities, the rates for white women are near zero. They're also twice as likely for their infants to die before the first year of life than white infants, and two to three times more likely to give birth too early or too skinny, a sign of insufficient development. Native women are also more likely to have higher rates of these problems than white women, as are some groups of Latinas. For the last decade, as a doula turned journalist and blogger, I've been trying to raise the alarm about just how different the experiences of women of color, but particularly black women, are when it comes to pregnancy and birth in the U.S. But when I tell people about these appalling statistics, I'm usually met with an assumption that it's about either poverty or lack of access to care. But it turns out neither of these things tell the whole story. Even middle-class black women still have much worse outcomes than their middle-class white counterparts. And while access to care is definitely still a problem, even women of color who receive the recommended prenatal care still suffer from these high rates. And so we come back to the path from discrimination to stress to poor health, and it begins to paint a picture that many people of color know to be true. Racism is actually making us sick. Still sound like a stretch? Consider this. Immigrants, particularly Black and Latina immigrants, actually have better health when they first arrive in the United States. But the longer they stay in this country, the worse their health becomes. People like me, born in the United States to Cuban immigrant parents, are actually more likely to have worse health than my grandparents did. It's what researchers call the immigrant paradox, and it further illustrates that there's something in the U.S. environment that is making us sick. So the research that you found points to to this idea that that racism actually translates to physical symptoms and and long-term health problems. Right. So what we understand now is that that discrimination actually has an impact on people's health through um, basically the nervous system, the mechanism of the nervous system. So when you experience the discrimination or the threat of discrimination, your body's flooded with hormones like cortisol and adrenaline um, that are really helpful when you're actually facing a life threat, but really have a negative a sort of negative impact when it happens all of the time over long periods of time. So things like um, being concerned that you're going to get pulled over while driving your car, even just the threat of that creates like this feeling of nervousness. And I mean, people can relate to this, right, in the nervousness they have when, you know, they have to slam on their brakes really quickly or something, yeah. or the nervousness they experience um, when they have a conflict with someone. Over time, that kind of um, fight or flight constant um, response actually weathers your your the, the sort of the systems that keep you healthy as well. And so that's kind of what people are starting to point to in understanding why these health disparities exist across lots of different health issues, not just maternal health. So let's talk about a uh, an African-American mom in an American hospital who's four, in some cases, 12 times more likely to die in childbirth than a white mother about to give birth. What are some of the things that, the, that an African-American pregnant woman might face that would cause 
the possibility that she would die in childbirth. So, I mean, I think you have to start like before she gets to the hospital, right? So it's what we were just talking about around people's experiences of um, people's broader life experiences and the challenges that folks face and the ways that race impacts how many more challenges and barriers and um, sort of difficult and stressful events does someone face. Um, So one of the places you can look at it is high blood pressure. So you can kind of understand that maybe physiologically, that if you're constantly under stress, that your blood pressure might have a response. Well, preeclampsia, high blood pressure during pregnancy, can be really, really dangerous. It can kill you. It can kill you, right? So that's one of the things that we see higher rates of in African-American women. I think it's also important to note that Native American women also face higher rates. They're sort of the second group. And then when it comes to Latinas, it depends on who you're talking about in the subgroups. Um, And then white women have the best outcomes. And Asian women, again, tend to have better outcomes, but it does exist in other groups. It seems to me that that part of this goes back to your idea of the of the immigrant paradox, right? That it's it's about the environment, right? Like you leave, you know, El Salvador, and you had your mom and your sisters and your brothers and your uncles and aunts, and you lived nearby, and then you managed to get across, and you're alone, and you're out of that supportive environment, right? But even people with their families here still struggle, right? So it's not just the immigrant traveling alone. But I do think that social support is a big piece of the puzzle. And that's where the individual model really goes to its worst is that we not only do we not provide environments where pregnant women are supported, we also criminalize and penalize them for their actions. So you're seeing a rise in women being um, prosecuted for drug substance abuse, substance use during pregnancy, or even for the outcome of their pregnancy, if they end up with a miscarriage, being criminally charged in places like Alabama, for example. But yeah, women are being criminalized for the choices they make during pregnancy. I mean, you see that in certain states. And that's, I mean, that's the exact opposite of what is ever going to help that person have a successful and healthy pregnancy is criminalizing them and putting them in jail, which is a great context for a pregnant woman. Like, absolutely not, right? So you start to see when we blame individuals for these situations, then we we penalize them, and it's the exact opposite of what's going to make them healthier. This problem that racism is making people of color, but especially black women and babies sick, is vast. I could spend all of my time with you talking about it. But I won't because I want to make sure to tell you about one solution, the JJ way. Meet Jenny Joseph. She's a midwife in the Orlando, Florida area who's been serving pregnant women for over a decade. Her clients, most of whom are Black, Haitian, and Latina, deliver at the local hospital. But by providing accessible and respectful prenatal care, Jenny has achieved something remarkable. Almost all of her clients give birth to healthy, full-term babies. Her method is deceptively simple. Jenny says that all of her appointments start at the front desk. No one is turned away due to lack of funds. No one is chastised for showing up late to their appointments. No one is talked down to or belittled. Jenny's waiting room feels more like your aunt's living room than a clinic. When you finally are called back to your appointment, you're greeted by Alexis or Trina, two of Jenny's medical assistants. During one visit I observed... Trina chatted with a young, soon-to-be mom while she took her blood pressure. This Latina mom was having trouble keeping food down due to nausea. As Trina deflated the blood pressure cuff, she said, we'll see about changing your prescription, okay? We can't have you not eating. That we is actually a really crucial aspect of Jenny's model. She sees her staff as part of a team that alongside the woman and her family has one goal, get mom to term with a healthy baby. This is a big departure from the traditional medical model because it places responsibility and information back in the woman's hands. So rather than a medical setting where you might be chastised for not keeping up with provider recommendations, the kind of settings often available to low-income women, Jenny's model is to be as supportive as possible. And that support provides a crucial buffer to the stress of racism and discrimination facing these women every day. But here's the best thing about Jenny's model. It's been incredibly successful. Remember those statistics I told you that black women are more likely to give birth too early, to give birth to low birth weight babies, to even die due to complications of pregnancy and childbirth? Well, the JJ way has almost entirely eliminated those problems, starting with what Jenny calls skinny babies. She's been able to get almost all her clients to term with healthy, chunky babies like this one. 
This is a um, infant, a baby girl born to a client of Jenny's this past June. So a similar demographic of women in Jenny's area who gave birth at the same hospital her clients did were three times more likely to give birth to a baby below a healthy weight. Jenny is making headway into what has been seen for decades as an almost intractable problem. It's a revolution in care just waiting to happen. I mean, is is the Jenny model, um, the Jenny Joseph model, can it happen? Can it can can you imagine that model existing all over the United States? This can work in any context. It's about the way that you treat people and it's about access to the clinic, right? So um, I do think if we understood the, the interventions to these problems, um, understood this to be an intervention, it should be funded to the tune of millions of dollars like a lot of other interventions are funded, right? If Jenny's model was a pill that you could take, it would be like the next big thing, right? But it's not a pill. And in some ways it's more simple than a pill, but that's not the way that our, our system is set up to, um, to deal with these kinds of interventions. And they require people to create environments that are relatively free from bias, right? And that treat people of color with respect. And that's surprisingly, unfortunately, a really difficult thing right now. That's Miriam Zuela Perez. She's a writer and the host of two podcasts, Radio Menea and Tonic. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, the consequences of racism. And for many children, it starts in the classroom. Because race often determines where you grow up. And where you grow up often determines what your classroom looks like, which was the case for Dina Simmons, who grew up in the Bronx. So, you know, you think about the Bronx, you think about the demographics. So it was mostly Latino. We had some folks from English-speaking Caribbean countries. And we had one Chinese family and one or two Albanian families, and really mostly folks of color. But our neighborhood also had a reputation for being kind of rough. In third grade, I um, would watch the news, and it was the time when they would say, it's 10 p.m. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Do you are? know where your children are? And every time I heard that, it would inspire such fear and anxiety in me because what followed after that was news about the Bronx. And it was bad news about the Bronx. Dina lived in a one-bedroom apartment with her mom and two sisters. And her mom did everything she could to keep Dina and her sisters safe. Uh, We spent a lot of time inside. My mother didn't want us to play outside. And in many ways, she was protecting us from sort of the dangers of growing up in an urban center where there's a lot of poverty. And the most important thing for her mom was to get her daughters a good education. You know, when my mom came to New York from Antigua, she landed JFK with $25 in her pocket and she started cleaning homes in Long Island. And in Long Island, um, she was watching some program about boarding school and it sort of planted an idea in the back of her head of saying, huh, I'd like my kids to have that opportunity as well. And did everything she could to get us to a better school. Because for her, education was our way to a better life. Because the public school in their neighborhood wasn't that great, when Dina turned 14, her mom sent her and her sisters out of the Bronx to a boarding school in New England. So you get to the school and you are um, a, a, a scholarship kid, right? Yep. A charity and kid, a charity actually. Kid. I felt like a charity yeah. kid. Like I, I went to boarding school feeling like that. And you're with kids who are coming from incredible wealth and privilege, right? Yes, yes. Did you instantly feel like an outsider? I instantly, huh. instantly felt like an outsider. You know, I remember the first day of school and, you know, looking around at who my classmates would be and thinking to myself, I will not have friends here. Huh because no one looked like me. Um, I had never been in an environment where I actually was a minority. I had grown up and everyone else looked like me. So it was the first time that I was going to a place where I was 
actually a minority, and I felt like that. And so dressing differently was enough. Having the hair that I have was enough to distinguish me from my classmates, the color of my skin. All of those moments really you know, made me come to believe that if I had stood any chance at a successful future, that I would do well to heed the glances, the unsolicited advice, and the public shaming that was for my own good. And then from that, I learned really to erase myself in order to survive. Dina shared some of those childhood experiences on the TED stage. Once I walked into a classmate's dorm room and I watched her watch her valuables around me. Like, why would she do that? Thought to myself. And then there was the time when another classmate walked into my dorm room and yelled, ew, as I was applying hair grease to my scalp. I learned that I didn't speak the right way, and to demonstrate the proper ways of speaking, my teachers gave me frequent lessons in public on the appropriate way to enunciate certain words. A teacher once instructed me in the hallway, asking, she said this loudly, Dina, it's not axing like you're running around with an ax, That's silly. Now, at this point, you could imagine the snickers of my classmates, but she continued. Think about breaking the word into ass and king, and then put the two together to say it correctly. Asking. There is emotional damage done when young people can't be themselves when they are forced to edit who they are in order to be acceptable. I know that teacher meant well. I know that the teacher wanted me to go around so that I speak in a way where, you know, people in power will want to listen. But there is an implicit message there, right? It's like, you need to learn this way in order to be successful. And what does that do to students when they think that the way that they have learned, that the way that they are is wrong? Ultimately, I'm a quintessential success story. I attended boarding school and college in New England, studied abroad in Chile, and returned to the Bronx to be a middle school teacher. I received a Truman Scholarship, a Fulbright, and a Soros Fellowship, and I could list more. (laughs) But I won't. (laughs) I have eternal imposter syndrome. Either I've been invited because I'm a token, which really isn't about me, but rather about a box someone needed to check off. Or I'm exceptional, which means I've had to leave the people I love behind. It's the price that I and so many others pay for learning while black. When we come back, Dina explains how she's trying to fight imposter syndrome in classrooms across the country. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First to Akimbo, a new podcast by best-selling author Seth Godin. Akimbo is a show about hacking the culture to make change happen. It's a little like Seth's blog. No guests, no fancy production, just 20 minutes of clear, concise insights into creativity and building a business. You can find Akimbo in your favorite podcast app or learn more at sethspodcast.com. Thanks also to WordPress.com. WordPress.com offers e-commerce options that range from an effective buy button to a complete online store, as well as code-free site building so you don't need a professional designer to get your website up and running. If you need help, WordPress has a customer support team that is available 24-7. Learn more and get 15% off any new plan purchase at WordPress.com slash radio hour.
Hey, one more thing before we get back to the show. If you want to take a much, much deeper dive into topics around race and ethnicity and culture, you should check out NPR's podcast, Code Switch. It's a pretty amazing show that goes into a lot of these issues every single week in incredibly powerful ways. It's hosted by Gene Denby and Shireen Marisol Maraji, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts or on NPR One. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the consequences of racism. And we were just hearing from Dina Simmons, she's an educator, about imposter syndrome, which is often felt particularly by students of color. After my talk aired, I received hundreds of emails from people saying, I'm so glad that you said this because this experience for me was true. Every kid should be able to go to school and feel like they could thrive, not survive, that they have the safety to be authentic, that there's not one message of what is acceptable, what is successful. And I, I think, you know, you have to name it and talk about it for people to realize, oh, you too? And I think from that, those conversations and that openness, there's power in that. There's sort of healing in it as well. How would, like, if we accept that this is a problem that mm-hmm. creates a culture of lower confidence and a feeling of not belonging and, mm-hmm. and can lead to worse outcomes, which is bad for everybody, like it's bad for the United States, it's bad for mm-hmm. our future, I mean, how... How can we start to think about fixing it? Well, there's no silver bullet, but I think it's important, one, for us to think about the environments where our students live and the curriculum that our students learn. You know, I spent a lot of my learning hood by my education reading about white people <laughs> and their heroic acts and never really seeing myself reflected in positive ways in what I was learning. You know, I I don't have to go too far to see negative images of myself or people of color displayed right back to me. So it's I think it's important for the educators in the room to consider how to invite the experiences and the lives of students into the classroom such that those experiences are welcomed, such that they see role models that look like them, such that they understand that their communities are communities that have assets, that are communities that are worth saving. Um, Because, you know, in many ways, I had to leave my neighborhood in order to attain a better education. And that in of itself sends a message that I had to to leave home because home had nothing to offer me. And I think there's just so many different messages that students of color particularly get that send them the message that they are an imposter. And I think to be black in this country is to constantly think about one's place, to constantly think about, am I welcomed here? Can we really have a conversation in in this country, in the United States, about education without talking about race? I don't don't think think so. Hmm. You know, if we think of the statistics uh, of who the students of color are, about half of our students uh, are students of color, and about 17, 18% of our teachers are people of color. So you have a potential cultural disconnects in the classroom every single day. And um, if you're a kid of color, you're more likely to not see yourself in the curricula because our schools are perpetuating problematic single narratives of who we are as a people. Hmm. I think we've agreed that we don't want to talk about the ugly aspects of our story, right? Because we've said, no, we've been heroic. We've been great. We we don't have any violence in our history. What? Slavery? What? Lynching? No, 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 no. So it's like we, we sort of don't want to confront ourselves in many ways. We don't want to look in the mirror and see the realm and the complexity of our history that was both heroic and also ugly. And I think we cannot heal if we don't understand who we are. Dina Simmons, she's now the Director of Education at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. You can see her full talk at TED.com. So, Adam, what is the, what's the U.S. prison population today? Um, since the early 1970s, we've seen this dramatic spike in incarceration where we went from a pretty static population of around 350,000 people, where we're now up around 2.2 million people. It's almost 1% of the American population. It is almost 1% of the American population. 
predominantly people of low socioeconomic backgrounds. This is former Boston prosecutor Adam Foss. One in three black men born today will spend some time in jail or prison. One in three black women today has a relative in jail or prison. And despite the fact that we only have 5% of the world's population, we have 25% of its incarcerated population. What do you think happened? What accounts for that spike? Um, There was a spike in violent crimes. The wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in the United States of America. And as a result, um, people pointed the finger at people from poor communities and particularly people of color. We will fight for every street. We will fight for every block. And so the, the response a lot of academics and scholars believe was actually the government responding in a different way to the new rights that black and brown people have. And you've seen it sort of throughout history. Whenever there's a gain, whether it's the Emancipation Proclamation or Reconstruction or, or the Civil Rights Movement. No more and the police are there to contain us, to uh, brutalize us and murder us. You've seen something replacing the ability to oppress and keep down people of color. A major initiative that I believe can mark a turning point in the battle against crime. Those who commit crimes should be punished. Millions of dollars will be allocated for prison and jail facilities. When you commit a third violent crime, you will be put away and put away for good. Three strikes and you are out. Adam says this history has created the criminal justice system we now have today. And his first experience with that system came in 2006 as a first-year law student on the day he walked into a Boston courthouse. Adam picks up the story from the TED stage. I walked into a courtroom and I saw an auditorium of people who one by one would approach the front of that courtroom to say two words and two words only, not guilty. They were predominantly black and brown. And then a judge, a defense attorney, and a prosecutor would make life-altering decisions about that person without their input. They were predominantly white. Over the course of the internship, I began to recognize people in the auditorium, not because they were criminal masterminds, but because they were coming to us for help and we were sending them out without any. Prosecuted, adjudged, and defended by people who knew nothing about them. The staggering inefficiency is what drove me to criminal justice work. The unfairness of it all made me want to be a defender. The power dynamic that I came to understand made me become a prosecutor. I think a lot of us uh, like think prosecutor and the person who puts people behind bars. Like, Why did you decide to become a prosecutor? Uh, one, because I read the definition of the job of the prosecutor differently. Um, when you ask people, well, whoever said that that was our job? People can't answer the question, and it's because we literally haven't thought about it since its inception hundreds of years ago. And when you think about because of what we know about mass incarceration, because we represent the people, the state, then we have an obligation to figure out what to do other than incarcerate people to protect public safety. In the fall of 2009, a young man was arrested by the Boston Police Department. He was 18 years old, he was African-American, and he was a senior at a local public school. He had his sights set on college, but his part-time minimum wage job wasn't providing the financial opportunity he needed to enroll in school. In a series of bad decisions, he stole 30 laptops from the store and sold them on the internet. This led to his arrest and a criminal complaint of 30 felony charges. I was standing in arraignments that day when Christopher's case came across my desk, and at the risk of sounding dramatic in that moment, I had Christopher's life in my hands. I was 29 years old, a brand-new prosecutor, and I had little appreciation for the decisions that I would make would impact Christopher's life. Christopher's case was a serious one and needed to be dealt with as such, but I didn't think that branding him a felon for the rest of his life was the right answer. For the most part, prosecutors step onto the job with little appreciation of the impact of our decisions, regardless of our intent. History has conditioned us to believe that somehow the criminal justice system brings about accountability and improves public safety despite evidence to the contrary. We're judged internally and externally by our convictions and our trial wins, so prosecutors aren't really incentivized to be creative. We stick to an outdated method, counterproductive to achieving the very goal that we all want, and that's safer communities. 
Most prosecutors standing in my space would have arraigned Christopher. Arraigning Christopher would give him a criminal record, making it harder for him to get a job. The criminal record and without a job, Christopher would be able, unable to find employment, education, or stable housing. Without those protective factors in his life, Christopher would be more likely to commit further more serious crime. The more contact Christopher had with the criminal justice system, the more likely it would be that he would return again and again and again, all at tremendous social cost to his children, to his family, and to his peers. And ladies and gentlemen, it is a terrible public safety outcome for the rest of us. You know, Adam, I wonder, I mean, how do you explain to people who, who would say to you, hey, you know, this guy um, did a crime and why yeah. should he get, a, a, you know, like a, a second chance? I hear a lot of debate about um, choice and accountability and responsibility. And if you don't want to do the time, then don't do the crime. Or I made it, look at me, not really recognizing you know, when they say we should be giving someone a second chance, that they got like 85 chances. Hmm. And it provides this really bad feedback loop again for that young person, seeing all of these other people get through life with all these chances, but they get a second chance, not really realizing that they never had a first chance. And that because they never had a first one, we owe them the runway to screw up many, many times because the behavior they're manifesting is in large part due to a community that they had no part in building. Prosecutors are the most powerful actors in the criminal justice system. Our power is virtually boundless. In most cases, not the judge, not the police, not the legislature, not the mayor, not the governor, not the president can tell us how to prosecute our cases. The decision to arraign Christopher and give him a criminal record was exclusively mine. I would choose whether to prosecute him for 30 felonies, for one felony, for a misdemeanor, or at all. I would choose whether to leverage Christopher into a plea deal or take the case to trial, and ultimately, I'd be in a position to ask for Christopher to go to jail. These are decisions that prosecutors make every day unfettered, and we are unaware and untrained of the grave consequences of those decisions. One night this past summer, I was at a small gathering of professional men of color from around the city, and as I stood there stuffing free finger sandwiches into my mouth, as you do as a public servant, I noticed across the room a young man waving and smiling at me and approaching me. And before I knew it, this young man was hugging me and thanking me. You cared about me and you changed my life. It was Christopher. See, I'd never arraigned Christopher. He never faced a judge or a jail. He never had a criminal record. Instead, I worked with Christopher. We recovered 75% of the computers that he sold and gave them back to Best Buy and came up with a financial plan to repay for the computers we couldn't recover. Christopher did community service. He wrote an essay reflecting on how this case could impact his future and that of the community. He applied to college, he obtained financial aid, and he went on to graduate from a four-year school. After we finished hugging, I looked at his name tag to learn that Christopher was a manager of a large bank in Boston. Christopher had accomplished all of this in the six years since I had first seen him in Roxbury Court. I can't take credit for Christopher's journey to success, but I certainly did my part to keep him on the path. Wow. I mean, you were this brand new prosecutor, and, and you took a really big risk. Uh, I had the benefit of having an amazing supervisor at the DA's office, who was also a black man, who gave us the discretion to do what we felt was right with our cases, and he would have protected us if things had gone wrong. And one lesson that I took away is things often don't go wrong. People respect the opportunity to atone and to be responsible for their crimes if the reaction to the crime is not judgment and punishment. And so sitting here today after you know nine years in the DA's office, I kept thousands of people out of jail and prison. Wow. And not only did I keep them out, I didn't have to play tricks with the law or defend people that I knew were guilty. It wasn't about that. It was about improving public safety by using the other tools around me. I mean, part of the part of what makes our country so complicated is um, when it comes to incarceration, it's a business, right? Like people make money off of it. And it seems that like that's really hard to untangle from the number of people incarcerated. It is and it's not. Um, just from an economics 101 standpoint, private prisons can't do the thing that is essential to their survival, and that's put people in them. Hmm. I have to disabuse people of all these ideas about, well, it's the laws, and it's the private prisons, and it's the 
bail bonds industry and it's the thin blue line, all of these things, it's like, yeah, but all that begins and ends with the decision of a prosecutor. Yeah, because, I mean, you could change the laws and it'll take some time. And essentially, it sounds like what you're arguing is that right now, if more committed, idealistic young people get into public prosecution, they can actually make it a real world impact immediately. Tomorrow. 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 Um, when you think about the fact that there are 31,000 prosecutors, that 11 million people went through our jails last year, that 650,000 people come out of jail and prison every year, the impact that better decision making at the front end could have could save us billions of dollars, could make us much safer, could start pulling people out of poverty and re-engender trust in the system that is, quote unquote, for the people. So. If we are where we are, right, with the situation in the United States where the deck is stacked against you, if you are a young brown or black yeah. man, like the, the, before you walk through the door, you are judged. Yeah. Um, is it going to change? I mean, do, do you think it can change? Absolutely. Even the people of most privilege who are going to the nicest high schools uh, are recognizing and talking about things like privilege. They're talking about things like mass incarceration in school. They're talking about the history of this country uh, in a way that should be taught. And by a confluence of all of those things, their social responsibility is different than their parents or even people in my generation. And so what I say to the sort of hardline people that are sitting in these offices, crossing their arms and saying this isn't right, is your time is running out. And there are way smarter, more motivated, more fair kids who are ready to take these jobs that want to see a better justice system. And it's just the reality of what I see out in this world. People are not going to take for granted that tough on crime is the solution. Adam Foss, he now heads the organization Prosecutor Impact, where he's training hundreds of young prosecutors to change what it means to be a criminal prosecutor. You can find his full talk at TED.com. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say I'm loud, say I'm clear. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our show this week on the consequences of racism. If you want to find out more about who is on it, you can go to ted.npr.org. You can also find hundreds more TED Talks at ted.com or on the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Diba Mutasham. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.